Every week, journalists at the University of Florida's College of Journalism and Communications report important stories for the people in the North Central Florida area and beyond. Now, student-athletes are able to profit off their name, image, and likeness, but before July 1st of this year, that was not permitted. They're waiving any requirements to for you to be vetted or anything like that, or whether you have this firearm illegal. They just want to take the gun off your hands. The three digits, it's they're hoping it becomes as reflexive as dialing 911, but it's 988, obviously. This is The Rewind from WUFT a look at some of the strongest reporting coming out of our newsroom and a discussion with the journalists who write these stories. I'm your host today, Ariana Asperu, and let's dive into the stories from this week. The University of Florida is being ordered to comply with a subpoena that all NCAA's 350-plus Division I schools were sent, stemming from a federal antitrust lawsuit filed in California. The lawsuit pertains to student-athletes' ability to make money off their name, image, and likeness. Consequently, current UF students received a curious email notifying them that some of their information will be handed over as part of the subpoena. That included Alexis Ashby, a WUFT reporter and former Gators lacrosse player. Her curiosity led her to Peyton Titus another WUFT reporter, to investigate how this may affect UF student-athletes, both past and present. Producer Melissa Fato spoke with both reporters about what this case could mean for student athletics. Peyton starts by describing the lawsuit. We're looking at uh, a case where the plaintiffs are trying to get kind of reparations for before July 1st of this year, when they were finally allowed to profit off their name, image, and likeness, like every other person on the planet, basically. Um, And they also are interested in getting a cut of broadcast TV money for football and basketball players, because as of now, that money goes to uh, the conferences and to the institutions, but the athletes don't see any of it. So uh, that's the main thing that these athletes are trying to win from this lawsuit. And um, the fact that the University of Florida was subpoenaed and all these other division one schools were subpoenaed for student athlete records uh, opens up the door for if slash whenever this case is uh, officially classified as a class action lawsuit and certified as such, uh, then they could potentially reap benefits from this lawsuit if the if it's decided in favor of the plaintiffs, basically, so. And I think something important to point out about that too is that it's not everyone who has ever competed at the University of Florida and other Power Five schools. There's a statute of limitations on antitrust lawsuits that is four years. So that will only be people that have competed from 2016 to the judgment or a judgment date of the case. So many student athletes or former student athletes got this email at the University of Florida Um, What kind of information is being released uh, as part of this subpoena? Yeah, so that will be um, name, image, and likeness documents, and then financial aid documents. And that is all that's being released. So it doesn't include medical records. It doesn't include grades, anything like that. Just those two documents. I just want to circle back to this for maybe people who aren't familiar with um, college sports. What kind of controversies have been attached to, to this in the past? Now, student athletes are able to profit off their name, image, and likeness, but before July 1st of this year, that was not 
permitted at all. Um, so you could lose your eligibility for doing that, um, which is different from any co other college student, you know, like myself, I could go on YouTube and like if I had however many subscribers or whatever, I could probably partner with a small business, give them a shout out one of my videos and get some money for it. These student athletes were not allowed to do any of that because of this other you know, aspect of their identity. And so there's been, in recent years, there's been a push to change that. Um, one thing that's happened over time is that for a while, the NCAA claimed that they could do this and could prevent um, student athletes from profiting off of their name, image, and likeness to pro protect their amateurism. So like the difference between professional sports and amateur sports is basically that amateurs can't get paid. And you're seeing a shift that people are now questioning, well, this company is making so much money and these athletes are the ones who are the stars of the show. And people are saying that doesn't really make sense why this company can make so much money off of these athletes and these athletes aren't getting anything. So even, so in the Alston case, it went all the way to the Supreme Court and Judge Kavanaugh had his concurrence on the case and he kind of slammed the NCAA for doing this. And that kind of also opened the doors for more cases to come forward. And um, the this current case is, I think like a reflection of just that kind of changing mindset and people questioning like why why has this been the case for so long? And is this something that we need to change? Right, and there, one, one kind of like last note, um, you know, the NCAA before its defense, and it was upheld by a lot of courts. And so that's part of why this is such an interesting uh, thing to look at right now. But they basically would say before that this was all in the best interest of competition. So making it to where student athletes couldn't make money off themselves or uh, to where schools didn't have to compensate athletes or anything um, was all in the best interest of preserving the college sports landscape as we know it. But now that NIL has been in effect since July and the world is not burning, uh, you know, pe people are saying, so we could have been doing this all along and you're proving your prior argument, which you would use to defend against this lawsuit, you're proving it wrong. Also in your story, you talked to um, some students and it's interesting just the 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 kinds of responses you got. I mean, one student was confused. She thought she was potentially being sued herself. Um, you know, other students kind of commented on the kind of commitment it takes to be a student athlete, how it's like a full-time job. Um, I mean, tell me about what you heard from the students that you talked to. Yeah, I think there's some really key points that stuck out to me and the students that we talked to. Um, one thing was when we talked to Addie Baggerly, um, she pointed out something that stuck out to me as a former student athlete being a female, that there's an argument that name, image, and likeness and allowing student athletes to set their own screen time through Instagram and um, other methods like that, it can help le level the playing field. But she was saying, well, if you look at influencer culture on Instagram and other social media apps, it's pretty much a lot of it is based on what people look like. And so are we leveling the playing field in the right way by doing this? Like, will it, will women athletes be looked at for their abilities or will they be looked at for their looks? Mahmoud Diabate is a linebacker on the Gators football team. And a point that he brought up that was super interesting 
was about how, you know, there, there are regulations around NIL that stipulate that schools can't be involved in the kind of procuring of deals. So he was saying that if I have to do everything through the athletic department, I have to do my tutoring through it. I have to do all of my medical stuff through it. I have to get my meal plan through it. When it comes to me making money, they can't help me with that. Like they help me with everything except trying to make money off my abilities. So my last question is, I mean, essentially what's next? What are we expecting to see next from this lawsuit? They have applied to be considered class action, um, which what that means is if they can prove that different student athletes have had the same or have the same grievances and have lost money, just like the plaintiffs in this case claim, then they can join the plaintiff class and they will automatically benefit from anything that the case, if the case wins, like they will benefit from that. They could see money and reparations through that. Um, so that judgment date will happen in a few months. Um, and if that goes through, that will be a big step in the case. And then from there, so class action lawsuits move at like a very slow pace. Um, the Alston case and the O'Bannon case each took around um, seven years, which were the other antitrust lawsuits related to um, NIL and NCAA. Um, so this will be a very long process. Um, it was first introduced in 2020, so we're talking like potentially 2027, um, but there will be some developments along the way, so it's definitely something to keep an eye out and follow. That was WUFT reporters Alexis Ashby and Peyton Titus speaking to producer Melissa Fato about UF being subpoenaed for information on its student-athletes as part of a potential class action lawsuit. We'll be right back. Big ideas are reshaping our world, from our jobs... If they're paying you way more than you expected to get, ask yourself, what is it exactly they want you to do? to what we eat. That message that we've finally made the sweet that your body wants. Yeah, that ad changed the world. New ideas come to life every week on Innovation Hub. Sunday morning at 11 on WUFT WUFT. In an effort to diminish gun violence, the Gainesville Police Department hosted a community gun buyback event on October 30th. This event was a response to rising gun violence and violent crime in Gainesville. Producer Sarah Mandile spoke with WUFT reporter Jake Reyes about his reporting on how the buyout was organized and why it was planned. Jake begins by summarizing what his article is about. The Gainesville Police Department, in collaboration with a few other organizations, including the, the state attorney's office, hosted a community gun buyback in response to a rising gun violence in the city. The, the goal of the buyback was just to kind of get more guns off the streets, as I, we've gotten information that most gun violence that happens in the city happen from stolen firearms. So the overall goal of this event was just to lessen the chance of these firearms being stolen and used in a gun crime later on. How did you find this story? So the Gainesville Police Department sent out a press release to our email. They also sent, um, they also been talking about it on Twitter. 
and on Facebook. So I found it through there and I was interested in covering it because, um, you know, gun violence is something that is rising a lot in the city. But I did link our article that we that we covered on it. And people have been advocating at the city commissions and the county commissions to to do something about these gun crimes. Um, so I found this gun buyback very interesting because I wanted to see what the overall impact. And I thought about all the people that came to the commission meetings and spoke about, you know, their experiences and and their lost loved ones and everything like that. So that's where uh, this idea came from. How was the turnout for the gun buyback event? So there were a lot of cars. Uh, it, I couldn't get an exact number because like GPD or anyone didn't actually take record of the exact number. I would say about 60 people lined up in their cars every, every hour to sell their weapons. So it was a very high turnout event. It was, there was a, it was very packed, a lot of cars. It was even kind of hard to just park there a little bit just to get there and do my reporting. What was the process of how the event was run and how the guns were collected? So basically what happened was it was a completely drive-through event. So there was no one ever coming out and, you know, actually like handing over their guns because for safety reasons, for two reasons, GPD can risk a COVID-19 infection coming out of there. And also, you know, someone walking out with a gun may be very dangerous. Someone could might take it and use, use, it, uh, use it or use a force or, or anything like that. So it's very dangerous. So it was completely drive-through event. So what they had people do, um, what attendees did was they kind of went in this line around the church uh, because the, the buyback event was hosted at a church and they, they, would, they were ordered to keep their guns in a container and put it in the back of their car so that when an officer approaches them at the staging area where they actually check the guns, they could just take it out themselves without the person you know, needing uh, to, to do anything. Um, so that was the process. The process was, you know, once they do get up to that line, that spot where the staging area is, officers would remove these firearms from the back of the vehicle. They would check its serial numbers, its model numbers. After they checked that and they verified everything's all good. If, if you had like a revolver, you turn in a revolver, you'd get $100. If it was a semi-auto pistol, you got $200. And any rifle or shotgun, you get $300. would be some gift cards. Um, and so after they exchange that gpd does not ask any questions they they don't ask you for who you are they don't they don't check your records um they promise am, am, amnesty which is means like they're waiving any requirements to for you to be vetted or anything like that or whether you have this firearm illegal they just want to you know take the gun off your hands and then after they take after the person drives off they take the actual firearm and they lock it in a safe um, to be destroyed later at the station Okay, interesting. Um, and in your article, you also talk about how there's debate over the effectiveness of gun buyback events. Um, could you talk about some of the different opinions that you heard during your reporting? Sure, sure. So originally, when they when GPD posted about this events, well, they posted about it twice. The one letting people know that they're going to have this event, and then another post that uh, that they had this event. Um, but both social media posts had a lot of people criticizing GPD for hosting this event. Um, the majority of comments I saw were, I guess, misinformed or misinformation that um, people commented, like someone said, like, hey, this is infringing on our Second Amendment rights. However, it's not infringing on the Second Amendment rights because the event is completely voluntary. They got a lot of like little things like that where people, you know, thought that, hey, this is, you know, some kind of violation or, you know, something wrong or 
you know, this is a trap to get people to turn in criminals. But again, you know, because of that amnesty, no one is actually, they're not checking for anybody's like IDs or anything like that. That was the majority of the criticism, but we did see a handful of criticism saying these aren't effective. You know, gun buybacks aren't effective and they're a waste of tax dollars. GPD spokesperson Graham Glover told me that the city actually allocated $15,000 to host this event. So when I saw a numerous amount of people like making the claims that these aren't really effective, I wanted to do some more background research and see if, you know, whether they have a point uh, here. So research in 2013 actually revealed that buybacks are largely ineffective in reducing gun violence, and they usually occur under public pressure on law enforcement concerning gun rising gun crimes. So I did see that research, and I did include that in our article. Um, but I also found out that analysis in, in 2019 that suggested that gun buybacks, they can be effective in, in reducing gun violence if it's included in more reduction strategies. So like if it's paired, like by itself, it's not going to do anything according to this analysis, but like paired with other strategies, it may be helpful and that they may be looking at the statistics wrong. Like maybe we should be analyzing how gun buybacks may help in other areas than just violent crime solely. And then after I, I, I included that research, um, the chief investigator of the, of the state attorney, Brian Kramer's office, Derry Lloyd, also like he didn't quote that research, but what he said was basically in line with what this analysis said. It said He said, quote, by itself, the gun buyback does not reduce crime, but along with other plans that the city of Gainesville and Chief Jones have introduced, we're hoping that it does reduce crime. So there is a little bit of like a credit to give to some of the people who were, you know, criticizing GPD for hosting the event. Um, but there's more research that, that needs to be done in general in the nation that can like really prove like its effectiveness and maybe some reevaluations of how effective they were. Gotcha. Yeah, that's interesting. Is GPD planning on hosting more gun buybacks in the future? Yes. So Glover told me that you know, because like the only thing that was hindering them from hosting these guy uh, these buybacks like last year, they hadn't done one since like 2019, was because of how bad the coronavirus pandemic was. There's no official plan or official works in to host these buybacks, but he said the goal is to do it so we don't have to do it anymore. He said he would like to see more of these events happen because usually when they do host them, they're actually pretty popular and do and they do have high turnouts. He said one thing that might complicate hosting these events was like funding for it because he said the city, you know, can't just keep funding, you know, $15,000 for more visa gift cards. Derry Lloyd, the chief investigator of the state attorney, Brian Kramer's office, said the office is actually trying to communicate with some of these other local police departments uh, to host these events to address their gun crime problems. But he said that's something that they're trying to look at, but and they're already in conversations with, with other local police departments. That was producer Sarah Mandile speaking with WUFT reporter Jake Reyes about the Gainesville Police Department community gun buyout event. We'll be right back. Behold the shepherd tone. The Tinkerbell effect. Hillbilly humanism. The Overton window. Hyper objects. The Bill Gates problem. The Zuckerberg delusion. Times are changing, and so is our vocabulary. Apodophobia. The public trust. Parasocial relations. The anti-bandwagon fallacy. Monopoly and monopsony. Let On the Media be your guide as we explore the future together. Sunday morning at 10 on WUFT 89.1, 90.1.
You're listening to The Rewind from WUFT. In October, four counties in Florida switched to a 10-digit digital phone number system. This change accounts for a national switch to a three-digit suicide prevention hotline. By 2022, people will be able to dial 988 to access the National Suicide Prevention Hotline. Producer Kristen Moorhead spoke with WUFT reporter Sarah Seppi about what this change means for Alachua County. Firstly, can you tell me about the change that's happening to the National Suicide Hotline? Yes, so the FCC, so the Federal Communications Commission, they found a report in July 2020 that said that people in crisis would benefit from having a hotline similar to 911 instead of dialing a full number to get to a crisis hotline. So they put in a request to like the House or whatever, the House of Representatives or something, to get a law passed to make 988 the national suicide hotline for people to call when they're in crises. And um, can you tell me a little bit about why that would be effective? Um, The spokesperson, Paloma Perez, she said they were very hopeful that a shorter number would draw more people to the suicide hotline opposed to calling 911 because the 911 operators are not really trained to deal with mental illness and crises like that. So the three digits, it's they're hoping it becomes as reflexive as dialing 911, but it's 988, obviously. They hope for that to be national by July, two, um, July 16th, 2022, so the summer. But right now it's the four zip code, like the four area codes are 941-561-352 and 321 that are able to call 988 right now. And your story mentions something called 10-digit dialing. Can you explain to the audience what that means? 10-digit dialing, so to use 988 as the hotline, any county with 988 as the prefix had to transition to 10-digit dialing. And basically, it's just the area code plus the telephone number. That's what 10-digit dialing is. Um, So local calls dialed with only seven digits will no longer go through. You'll hear like a message saying, oh, this can't be complete or something like that. But yeah, it's basically just the area code plus the telephone number. And you mentioned earlier that they want to shift uh, some of the burden of some of these hotline calls from 911 to this new 988 number. Can you talk a little bit about why that is and, and why these hotline workers don't want people calling 911 for, for uh, issues like suicide? Um, it's not that they don't want people to call. It's just that the people at the National Suicide Hotline are more equipped to deal with these people in crises because I think 911 operators would automatically maybe send an ambulance or something. And ambulance rides are, you know, they're costly. So to be able to implement 988 instead and be transferred to a mental health counselor and someone who's trained to like maybe talk someone through something or, you know, people have called suicide hotlines that are not in imminent danger. They're not 
going to harm themselves. So maybe they're just going through a hard time. So to be able to have 988 and dial to speak to a like a licensed mental health counselor instead of 911 where they maybe would just automatically assume the worst and send fire truck or ambulance or whatever, um, I think that's the main point of the implementation. What was your process for reporting the story like? How did you hear about this change and what was what was your process like? Um, I heard about it. I actually got a tip like in class. Someone had, it was like a in my multimedia journalism class, someone had placed it in my group as an idea and I just kind of went with it. I have a full schedule, so there's like it's gonna be a simple story. I did not know what tentative dialing meant. I was like um, what is this? I thought it was going to affect hotels and businesses because I thought it was going to be like on landlines, but it ended up becoming much more interesting when I found out about the suicide hotline. And I found that out by just doing a bunch of research. And then I reached out to the public, public service commission. And I spoke to Sakina Diaz and she explained that you know, this is more than just a number. And, and then I reached out to the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, and she, Paloma, she really went in depth with like, and she was really passionate about um, the lives lost to suicide. And they were really, she was just really passionate about getting this passed and getting this implemented because the last year was really hard on everyone and people are calling more than ever. So um, it's the 10th leading cause of death in all age categories. So yeah, it just, I just spoke to her and she gave me most of the information and then the rest was kind of just research. But yeah, I owe a lot to Paloma. She really gave me the gist of everything. You mentioned this past year being hard for everyone. It How... Was COVID a factor in this decision to um, switch over to a shorter hotline number or did it just kind of happen to coincide? Yeah, it it was actually in place in before COVID. Like they were in the process of pitching it before COVID. Obviously not pitching that to journalism, Tarkin, but they're in the process of putting this in place before COVID. But then once COVID hit, obviously they're like, okay, well, we have a little bigger thing on our hands, so... It all, yeah, just so happened to coincide with one another, and I think everything worked out for the best. And is there anything else you would like to add that you think we didn't get to in this interview? The National Suicide um, Prevention Hotline can still be reached through their old number. She wanted me to make sure that that was said, like, even after July 2022, like, forevermore, you will be able to dial the... Oh, 1-800-273-TALK. You'll be able to dial that no matter what year it is or whatever. But 988 is just meant to take a burden off everyone. That was WUFT reporter Sarah Seppi talking to producer Kristen Moorhead about the national switch to a three-digit suicide prevention hotline. As Sarah mentioned, the original hotline 1-800-273-TALK will still be available in addition to the new 988 number. If you are struggling with depression or thoughts of suicide, help is available. 
Make sure to join us next Sunday when we'll be showcasing the best stories from WUFT News. The Rewind is produced by Melissa Fato, Sarah Mandile, Ariana Spiru, and Kristen Moorhead. Our executive producer is Sky LeBron. WUFT News is operated out of the College of Journalism and Communications at the University of Florida. I'm Ariana Spiru. Thank you for listening.